And we pray thy power will keep us indeed, Father, until we are at home at last. We pray in Jesus' name, and we sing these praises to your name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn again this morning to Romans chapter 8. You know, it's interesting, somebody was asking me at our little gathering the other night, and these are friends who don't share our faith, and they were asking me, and this didn't used to happen, they said, what are you preaching on on Sunday? And I said, well, and I know what they're looking for, they're looking for some sort of motivational, uplifting, you know, thing that comes to my mind, um, I, no, I, no, isn't that, I think that's what people think of, right? And I said, well, what we do is we turn to a text of scripture and we, and we try to explain it, not embellish it, but try to get into the very core and kernel of what it actually means. And so I said, I'm preaching uh, from Romans chapter 8, 28 verse to, to, to verse 30. What a great verse to send them to. How can I be one of them? I mean, it, it's got to conjure that. If it doesn't, um, it should certainly conjure some kind of great excitement in our hearts because these are some of the most empowering assurances of all time. And as I say, and and I'm focusing on the last things in these last few weeks and in these next few weeks, and when the tumult really is upon us in whatever form it is, In whatever theory of the end times you have, the only thing you'll really have is the assurance of your faith to keep you strong. Um, So I'm trying with these verses to make sure that we stay strong in the assurances that God wants us to have. He doesn't just want us to be saved. He wants us to know it beyond shadow of a doubt. He wants us to be able to Counsel one another and comfort one another with these words, he said to the Thessalonians. And so I hope that does it for for us as well. And I also hope I can urge the saints to take another look at who we are and how we're walking with God. And so I hope to accomplish some of those things even in this next hour. So I'll begin at verse 28 the beloved assurance of the Apostle Paul to the Roman church of the first century. And so Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. O Father, let us receive great revelation that we are part of that great company who are already in the prophetic future, O Lord, glorified in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we know, the apostle says, he's assuming some things that maybe we can't assume. He, know, he knew some of them in the Roman church. He names, oh, I don't know, 16 or 20 of them in the last chapter, doesn't he? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we labored over this verse last week, but I'll, uh, I just don't feel that the wonderful assurance of it... Um, has come to us in the fullness of the glory that is intended. 
or can be gleaned out of this. Friends, this is our ultimate eschatology. We know that all things work together for good. He's talking all things now and forever for those who love God. So the first thing we ask, are we those who love God? And secondly, are we called according to his purpose? Are we conformed to the image of his son? Those things are incumbent upon us to reap that insurance, that assurance rather, that the apostle intends. So this is our ultimate eschatological verse. We don't have to go to all those well-worn passages that speak cryptically and symbolically. I don't put those down. I just say they're not the only places that speak about our eternal deportment. We don't have to go to all those symbolic places. In fact, there's a, there's a rule in Scripture, perhaps you know this. You don't explain an unclear, you don't explain a clear passage by using an unclear passage. You explain the unclear by using the clear. Some things are very clear and plainly stated, and some things are cryptic. And the things that are cryptic, we tend to argue about. But the clearer statements can clear that up for us. And so we must use the clear passages of Scripture to unravel the meaning of the unclear and not the other way around. And so the Lord's gracious beyond measure to give this apostle, to give Paul this wonderful illumination regarding our eternal state. I'll tell you, I'm concerned for the body of Christ. Certainly for the nominal church. Certainly for churches that were straight in their confessions for so many years and seems to have departed of late. Great denominations, whole oceans of believers who are suddenly in systems where they no longer cherish the ancient truths of Scripture as though these things could change somehow. And I hope we're not among them. So I'm afraid for the body of Christ, which is the church of God, that we are as yet not cognizant of the times in which we live. I'm afraid that we've become sleepy in our witness, weary in well-doing, and worst of all, apathetic to some of the happenings going on in our world as though the times were completely normal. It seems to me that we're in a state that Jesus warned about when he said, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then he said this, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he explains what he means. For as in the days before the flood, what were people doing? Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, nothing wrong with those things. But when that becomes your life's purpose, your goal, to the exclusion of other things, you you can sort of put out of your mind the terrible situation that's about to come upon you. He said they were drinking and eating and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I'm wary of the signs of the times. Jesus said to the multitudes, wherever you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. I I have to think that we are a church filled with more meteorological speculations than than is our due. Everybody is always telling me what the weather is going to be. And I hear from one person one thing and one person the other. And uh, we are those who look and depend on weather reports 
And he's saying a shower, he said, you, you see the cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. That was pretty simple in Palestine. Wasn't a lot of clouds and wasn't a lot of showers. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there'll be fair weather. And there is fair weather. And then what does he say? Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern the time? And why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? Does the Savior speak of us when he says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left? Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Friends, you are the house, and sin is the thief. The Savior gives us warnings. The Savior warns us about ourselves. He knows that we've become complacent. Every generation has its level of complacency, and you can see it happen. He knows that we become lost in day-to-day concerns that in the moment seem so important, so necessary, even overwhelming. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that our concern for spiritual things is waning. They're sleeping somewhere on the back burner of our minds. And I wonder if we have even the slightest notion of real overwhelming things. The kind of things he talks about, like the flood or the future holocaust, if you will. Peter said, this earth will melt with fervent heat. What does that mean? I wonder if we're prepared for real destructive events that may be on our doorstep, even at the door. We can see that the apocalypse will be like the flood, he told us. Comes on unawares. It's the nature of people to think that momentary concerns are all that matter. But the Savior and his apostles are trying to get the churches to wake up to the reality that what we see before us is only a transition to other things, other times. Other conditions, eternal conditions. Look how our small troubles marry us to the moment. You know, last week when we left the service, we went over to our friends Karen and Michelle's. As some of you know, a lot of us went over there. Uh, They had had a flood in that last big storm that we had, and their finished basement was flooded with water. And it was carpeted, and there were bedding, and there was computers and all these things, and there was water. And... She asked me what to do about it, so I went right down and looked, and on the way home on Saturday, Karen said, you know, it's so bad in there, I can't breathe. It's, it's you know, so when the carpet and, the, and the, the padding gets soaked, it's very pungent, very hard to breathe. So we went down there after church and changed the situation very quickly. But I was sitting down with Karen, well, both Karens, <laughs> and um, she said, you know, I was, I was so caught up in our difficult moment what happened to us and then I thought of what I'd seen in news clips recently of whole houses being washed away and whole towns that are gone and she thought how small my trouble is Um, it's good to have those little incremental reminders along the way by the way we cleaned it up nice she was very grateful she showed up on Thursday night at the Bible study and gave gifts to everybody because most of the people that were there were at that study at my house 
But sometimes we need those reminders to wake us up that the problems for, the, for today are not only solvable, they're kind of small sometimes. And I'm not belittling anybody's affliction, believe me. Um, but sometimes we just have to look up. The dishwasher breaking down is probably not the sign of the end times. But there's probably, but it could be. Um, certain things we really ought to look at with seriousness. And I'm not talking about uh, sicknesses and I'm not talking about um, small destructive things of our property. I'm talking about the sin that lives in our hearts that we just get used to and it's called complacency. Our small troubles tend to marry us to the moment. Look how our political concerns bewitch us into thinking that we may really make a difference when the apocalypse is upon us. You think it's going to make a difference that we got our guy in office? I'm not so sure. And by the way, the text I read about one will be taken and the other left, it's not a rapture text, it's a, it's a flood text. And the one that got taken away is the one that was washed away in the flood, not the one they got left. So don't co-opt it for your pet theory. The one that's left is saved, and the one taken away is the one whose sinful existence was washed and cleansed from the earth. Otherwise, the whole passage doesn't make any sense. How long will you live in the sin of the moment as though Christ is not coming back? How long will you make excuses for lax moral conduct or for spiritual deadness? Friends, I've never been a preacher of woe and warning, but I see the church of our day as lost in dainty little pretend realities and futile little nursery rhyme doctrines that we think will be sufficient when the moment of crisis comes. Jesus loves me. This I know. Do you really know that? I hear people say that who I know have no concept of who he is and what he loves and what he hates. Do they know he's a wrathful judge? We had some friends to our house years ago nominal believers, and uh, I had just come to the Lord, and I was a little fiery in those days, and uh, we were talking about scriptural things, and I said, and she was talking about Jesus loves me and all these things, I said, do you know that Jesus went into the temple on a holy, in a holy season of Passover, and he fashioned a whip out of cords, and he whipped everyone in the temple for sinning against God by putting commerce above religion, and he whipped them all and drove them out of the temple, angry, turning over their tables and ran them out. I said, do you know that about Jesus? And she said, that's not the Jesus I know. Now, see, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus is not this flat little cartoon character. He's a fully orbed human being who happens to be God. I see the church of our day lost in these little rhythms and rhymes do they know what he expects that he expects a return on his investment do these people know he expects something back from the gifts he gave you yeah jesus loves the world he brings the sunshine on the just and the unjust and the rain upon the fields of the of the good and the evil he does all those things but he expects to be thanked and worshiped in return and at least acknowledged that it was his blessing most people go through life without a thought of thanking God for their good fortune. He expects a return on his investment. Do they remember that he said to the unfaithful who squandered his money? He said, why then did you not put my money in the bank? 
that at my coming I might have collected it with interest. Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Does your little nursery rhyme Jesus have that aspect in his character? Do such people know that Jesus, whom they say loves them, also says, but why do you call me Lord and will not do the things that I say? In other words, you profess with your mouth that I am Lord, but you deny me in your works. Where's your repentance from obvious sins? Where's the pouring out of your heart for forgiveness? Where's your prayer life? Do you consider my will in your life at all, the Lord asks? Or is he a genie in the lamp that we conjure up when our ducks fall out of line? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Are we those who forget that the Bible tells us other things about Jesus as well? Are you concerned only with the speck in your brother's eye? Or is there a log in your own eye that you refuse to remove? Recall the simple teachings of the Savior. Have we forgotten that the word warns of this very thing? What did he say to the, uh, from the book of Hebrews? Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Friends, the time for repentance does expire. So do it now. And when you're done with your own moral inventory, when you're full of forgiveness and empty of judgment, when you've reaffirmed your first love, then approach these verses of Scripture that the Apostle has put before us, and we'll be able to say with Paul, and we know. That's when we'll know that all things work together for good. For who? For us. For those who love God. For those who repented in obedience to God out of love of God. The apostle gives us credit here for knowing something. He says, and we know this, and that's that all things work together for good for someone, not for everyone. The question is, am I that one of those someones? Are you one who can be identified as a lover of God? How many people do you know in your life who they say, is he a Christian? And you say, well, he made a profession. It was long ago, though. I don't see him walking for Christ. But he made a profession, so I count him as a believer. You don't want to be that person. You want to be the person that they say he loves the Lord. His whole life is dedicated to the teachings of Christ. Are you the one who can be identified as a lover of God, or do works betray you? Does your lack of commitment reveal you? Are your assurances based on things you really don't know about the Lord? Paul asked that very thing to other believers. To the Corinthian church, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he names who they are. Once again, fornicators, always top of the list. Idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of these inherit the kingdom of God, he said. So we love our little sayings that pass for doctrine in the church today. We say, Jesus loves the sinner but hates the sin. Is it really true? In the end, it'll be the sinner who perishes in his sin, won't it? Jesus said, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and he ain't talking about trees. 
Therefore, by their fruits, you'll know them. It's time for a fruit inspection, and don't wait for the final inspection. I'm a builder. I know all about final inspections. That's when you get caught of all the things you didn't do right along the way. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? So I gave a challenge to the church a couple of weeks ago. It's time to be certain of who we are. It's time to search out the desires of our hearts, to search those things that we secretly hope the Lord will not notice, and get rid of those. It's time to put those on the altar. And the first is this. If these wonderful assurance verses do not excite you to your core, I wonder if, it, if it's because we secretly are not certain of them at all. I wonder if we wonder if our lives of sin and apathy to God and scanty commitment to the things of God will find us out. There's a lot to wonder about. I wonder about other things. I wonder if when Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good, if we know that we are the we that he's talking about. And that's how I'm setting this up this morning. Are we the we that he's talking about? Can I have the assurance that he's telling me I should have and I should know about? That's the question that will stifle our assurance of salvation. Am I one of the we? And in the time of tribulation coming upon the world, that assurance is the only impregnable fortress against Everything we have to face when the tumult comes, it is that shield of faith that repels every fiery dart of the wicked one. It's that assurance. It's a wonderful thing to know that even the tumult, even the holocaust cannot hurt us. For those who love God, the burning fiery furnace will have no effect. We know that, right? In the book of Daniel. The flames of destruction cannot touch the truly beloved they can be seen walking in the flames and there's someone else with them that looks like the son of god it's a wonder or i wonder rather what things lurk within our hearts that disrupt this assurance when paul languished in prison it was good for him to know what eternity held for him imagine being in prison and talking about it like a joyful experience it really the assurance he had transcended him he knew it was a speck in eternity that he would spend suffering there And so he wrote of such things to the Colossian church. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What, what did he say in the Beatitudes? Lay up treasures in heaven. Don't lay up treasures in earth because your heart will be in the treasure. Where your, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Lay up treasures in heaven, he said. The greatest treasure in heaven you can lay up is this assurance that he's offering, but it's only for those who love God. In the same breath, he urges us toward preparation to meet Christ. Paul wasn't big on predictions. Did you ever notice that? He left that to others. And he said, therefore, put to death your, your members which are on the earth. Again, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. We're the sons and daughters of, disobe- of obedience, and we ought to be recognized as, as such, at least by each other. And so if we're the we of whom he speaks, then it surely follows that we know that all things will work out in our favor according to his purpose. 
Only then may we rejoice in the light of these great and precious promises. When's the last time you truly gloried in the promises of God? If we know we're, if we know where the called, if we know we're those who love God, then we can also be assured that all things work together for good for us. Remember the teaching of Paul that brought us to this place of assurance? Remember from Romans chapter 6? Let's not forget Romans, the rest of Romans, because we're here so long. Shall we sin that grace may abound? That's not the question the, the saint asks. The saint says, shall we who died to sin live in, any, live in it any longer? And so verse 29 comes in. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, There's the whole predestinating package in a verse. We're not only the called friends, but we're called according to his purpose. And his purpose is for us to be conformed to the image of his son, he tells us. Shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? The purpose is not that we come just as I am. The purpose is is that we come, that we conform to the image of the son of God. So let's get into the text then. Two words are of great importance if we really take hold of the apostles' meaning. The first word is for. The little words always mean so much in a logical argument. The for is there to show not only that the former thing is true, but he gives the reason why the former thing is true. That's what the for means. We enjoy this great assurance, for we are the ones whom God foreknew. If we were not foreknown by God in eternity past, we could not possibly enjoy assurance in the here and now. Conversely, we could say, we were foreknown, therefore, we know that all things work together for good for us. The foreknowledge of God is a very important doctrine. So my analogy is this. I was allowed into her bedchamber, for I am her husband. Or conversely, I am her husband, therefore I was allowed into her bedchamber. So that's the meaning, the connective meaning of the word for. An even more important meaning of a word is the, is the word foreknew. For whom he foreknew. And this is a severely abused term in the churches today. Foreknew is a, is a sovereignty word, friends. It's a covenant word. Some say this, some think foreknowledge is Well, you know, God, who is omniscient, could look down the annals of time, and he could see everything that you were going to do. And he saw you down there in the 20th century, receiving the gospel. So he predestined you to believe. That's completely backwards of what we're getting here. And I'm going to demonstrate that just from the text itself. He saw how we would react to the gospel, and so he put his seal on those whom he saw choosing their own fate. He saw us receive the gospel, so he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters by Jesus Christ. Now that sounds to me more like we predestined ourselves. In other words, his foreknowledge and his calling of you was dependent on something that you haven't even done yet. In fact, you're not even born yet. I mean, the world hasn't even begun yet. It's before the foundation of the world. If we keep the chronology in this thing proper, that's when foreknowledge happened. Before any of us were here. But we were here in the mind of God. 
I hope you can see the mangling of the term in this rendering. Such a thing would not only make the whole of the gospel a man-centered thing, it would render God dependent upon our inspired decision-making process. So I say to you that perhaps those who defend such a belief are really confusing divine foreknowledge with some kind of extrasensory foresight. Foreknowledge is a far more profound attribute than foresight. Foreknowledge is not foresight. It's not just God saw you do something in the future. It carries with it a much more intimate meaning than that. I'm going to let MacArthur explain. From his commentary on this verse, he writes, Foreknew is from prognosko, a compound word with meaning beyond that of simply knowing beforehand. In scripture, he says, to know often carries the idea of special intimacy and is frequently used in a love relationship. Have you heard that before? In the statement, and then he says this, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. The word behind, had relations with, is the Hebrew word for knowing. It's this intimacy. Cain knew his wife. I think we knew I think we know that didn't mean he read her bio, right? He knew her intimately. That's what foreknowledge is. God knew you intimately before time began. God said to the nations of Israel, of all the nations on earth, you are the only one I have known and cared for. Does that mean he didn't know anything about the other nations? No, he had this intimate connection only with this one nation. He foreknew them. To be foreknown is to have had a special intimacy with our creator before we were even physically conceived. It's like the psalm that David sang when he said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet they were none of them. That's the total opposite of looking down and seeing what you were going to do. He fashioned your days for you before the days existed, before you existed. God had the whole plan worked out. Your name was written in God's book before you were given the name by your parents. I got a feeling when we see that book, we're going to find out our parents misnamed us. What do you think? (laughs) You know, God likes to give new names to people. Abram was Abraham and Jacob was Israel. And, you know, he, he changes people's names. Your name was written in God's book before you were given that name by your parents. That's the intimate beauty of the divine purpose of foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is the key to this whole assurance passage. And it's a travesty that so many have lost the true sense of such an important theological term as this. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the connecting word here is that. It means the same as if he had said, so that. So the text could read like this. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Right? Now, if we're keeping up, we're seeing the logical progression of predestination. And I have to make an astounding statement as I think about this logical progression, and I have meditated on these things now for some time. It is so astounding that I expect some people will reject what I'm about to say, but I hope you'll think about it. 
I hope before you take issue with me on this that you consider the logic of Paul's argument for the absolute assurance of your salvation. There can be no greater assurance than this next statement that I'm about to unfold. And so this is it, friends. Jesus cannot be fully glorified apart from our glorification. Read it carefully. The sense of it is this. We are conformed to the image of Christ so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The whole thing goes together. If our glorification was to fail, and we know it can't, if the promise was to fall apart, so would the entire predetermined plan of God. Jesus is not to be merely the firstborn of the dead. He must be the firstborn among many brethren. The brethren have to be born again as well. It's like when he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He doesn't want to be there without the church. That's part of the plan. Jesus is glorified. It is absolutely assured that also will we be glorified with him. The whole of God's plan for eternity is that Christ's glory depends upon his ability to bring us to glory with him. And if that's not the epitome of of assurance, I don't know what else could be. We're part of the whole glorious, finished work of God for the church. Never make light of the church. It's essential to our theology that God redeemed the church. That's the greatest eschatological point we have. The gathered saints of God are the many brethren about who he speaks here. Be joined to the church. Pray for the church. Be committed to her, for she's the bride of Christ. She is to be forever joined to him in glory. Remember this he said to the Ephesians? And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. The church is his body, the fullness of him. A head without a body is not fullness. A head has to have a body. We are glorified together with Christ. He's not just firstborn. He's firstborn among many brethren. And you'll be born with him. I can't imagine anything more glorious or assuring than that. We know that God cannot fail. That goes without saying. So we know that the plan can't fail either. So all this explanation is an intellectual exercise to ensure our understanding of the assurance of our glorification in Christ. He must be glorified among many brethren in order for the plan to be realized. And so we may be just as assured of our glorification as we are of his. That's what he said in chapter 6 when he said, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Christ. It's a It's a joint glorification. Now, I don't want to leave the text today without addressing the force of the word predestined. All right? It's a word which means exactly what the sum of its parts mean. It means destined beforehand. Pre means before, right? It's the absolute opposite of fate. Spurgeon made the the contrast clear. He said, fate is blind. Providence has eyes. I think that's a good way for us to understand it. We're being directed by something, not by dumb chance or fate, right? Fatalism is a godless philosophy that believes inanimate cosmic forces determine all outcomes. We're not just like floating in the breeze hoping we're going to be saved. 
Christ is glorified, and those of us who love him will be glorified with him. That's the fullness of the plan. Fatalism is apathy. You ever hear people say, hey, it is what it is? I've said it is what it is. I imagine I've heard, hey, it is what it is. Um, That's really fatalistic. Um, The Christians should say, it is what God determined it would be. I mean, the Hebdas won't even let me say, see you next week. They have to say, God willing. They have to add that into me. Our religion isn't fatalistic. It's providential. It's being guided by an intelligent designer who's God. God determined beforehand that we must be with him in eternity. He looked upon our unformed substance. That blows me away, that image. I wonder what our unformed substance looked like to God. We weren't even conceived yet. Our parents weren't even born yet. He looked upon our unformed substance and knew all our days when as yet there were none of them. He's determining this whole thing. And guess what? Thus far in the program, you don't even know about it. He said, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Note the logical progression of Paul's statement. Moreover means what? It means even more than that. Even more than that, this. It means as wonderful as these promises are, let me add to them. So note this. Thus far in the divine progression of God's eternal plan, we've been left out of the process. We haven't even been conceived. The earth isn't even created yet. And the whole process is determined by the master planner. In other words, all that's done thus far toward our glorification has been done by God in our behalf, and we are as yet unformed and uninformed. And this is the first point in the progression that the unformed become the informed. Whom he predestined, these he also called. So in the fullness of time, God made the plan known to us. Calling is being put on notice. All this was arranged until that point in your life when God called you and you heard the call. Now, I have an illustration, but I have to use somebody for this. I usually use Donnie. Uh, Let me use Eric this morning. (laughs) Sorry, brother. Um, No, but when you work for a company, you work for a great company, and you have a, a great position in that company, and you're in there in your office, and you're and you're making, uh, you're directing your team to work for that company. And meanwhile, up in the in the boardroom, where the CEO is and the president, right, and the CFO and the COO and all the other C's are up there, right, and they're saying, you know, he's doing some good work down there. I think we ought to promote him and give him all these other duties. And I think we ought to give them all these other privileges and a carte blanche credit card in the business's name. And I think we ought to give him um, uh, a retirement plan in perpetuity that he never has to worry about anything again. Eric doesn't even know that happened. It's all planned. It's signed off. And it's ready to go. Then he gets the calling. Eric, could you come up here, please? <laughs> That's the calling. Everything's planned out, and you finally get notice of it. You get put on notice. You know all these things you just read in the Bible? This is the moment where God's calling you, where you finally found out that those things you heard from all those obnoxious preachers like me was actually maybe had some truth to it, and maybe would accrue to your benefit, and maybe you'd have benefits from it and privileges, right? So you get the call. 
It's all arranged. You had nothing to do with it. Always say yes to the call, though. One of our doctrines tells us that if we're truly called, we always say yes. It's called irresistible grace, right? So thus far in the divine progression of God's eternal plan, we've been left out of the process. In other words, all that is done thus far toward our glorification has been done by God in our behalf. Whom he predestined, whom he foreknew, these he also called. So in the fullness of time, God made the plan known to us. Calling is when he did that. Do you remember that time in your life or that season in your life where you felt you were being urged toward a different path in your life? My whole thinking process changed when I was called. And the calling is the point in our life where we realize God had planned our lives without our knowledge and without our consent. It was all planned. The board in heaven. Board of Directors in Heaven was deciding. And by the way, the Board of Directors in Heaven is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's this inter-Trinitarian cooperation where they're all working together for good for those who love God. The calling is the point in the salvific process where God took us into his confidence. I've prepared all these things to you, and now I'm revealing it to you. It is awesome. It's merely the moment that God chose to tell us about it. It's not, um, it's not the moment we were called, not the moment we were saved, the calling. It's the moment God chose us to tell us about it. It was already planned. It was inevitable all along. It was as inevitable as Christ being filled in the glory of God's purpose for him. Right? Some people think Christ failed and went to the cross. Some people think that... Um, It was the forces of darkness that overcame him, and it was some kind of a defeat. And I have to believe for one moment in the mind of Satan the devil that he rejoiced that that might be the case. And then he saw that it was his defeat. And even though we do not see the glory in one another, we do not see the Christ-likeness that we will one day display, the apostle may speak of it as though it's already accomplished because it is. All is accomplished in the infinite mind and effectual purpose of Almighty God, for whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. It is finished. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, we glory in your promises. And we glory in the assurance that is available to those of us who love God, who are the called, according to your purpose. We thank you with all our being for the privilege of being among the called. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.